listening to Quintilian, the Latin Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sellers. Daniel Gallagher holds degrees from the University of Michigan, the Catholic University of America, and the Pontifical Gregorian University. For 10 years, he worked in the Vatican as a Latin language specialist, serving first Pope Benedict XVI and then Pope Francis. Since 2017, he has taught in the Department of Classics at Cornell University, where he currently holds the title of Professor of the Practice. Daniel has published extensively in the field of medieval philosophy, and he also translated the popular Diary of a Wimpy Kid into Latin, a book entitled Commentarii de Inepto Puero. I began our conversation by asking Daniel to describe a typical day on the job in the Vatican's Office of Latin Letters. The day would usually begin fairly early. I would, after breakfast, head into the Vatican and walk up to my office, which was in the Apostolic Palace, basically the series of apartments and offices that makes up the Pope's residence, or it did at that time. And the day was structured pretty rigorously in the sense that we had uh, designated hours on which to work on our projects. Um, and we worked individually and then worked as a team. A team, uh, our team consisted of basically uh, four to five Latinists. And depending on the day, we may be writing a, a long document, such as a papal encyclical, an apostolic exhortation, something that would be a project of the Pope at the time that could run anywhere from 30 to 120 pages. Other days, it would be a series of short projects, writing papal bulls, correspondence, a whole series of types of letters that the Pope is responsible for. So we would compose whatever needed to be composed that day. And a typical day actually was a, would be a combination of a long-term project and some shorter-term projects. Then basically with those projects, we would either compose from scratch in Latin or we would be working from a base text, not necessarily translating from a base language, but using that base language document to draft whatever it is that needed to be drafted in Latin. Um, we would then uh, gather at about 11... 30, 11.15 or 11.30 for tea and to go over our work and to talk in Latin, uh, read our work to, to one another to catch errors or to give suggestions, uh, go back uh, in the typical Italian fashion, actually a, a long lunch break, about two hours where you have your main meal and take some rest. And then you go back in the afternoon for a few hours. Um, and those afternoon hours for me, I usually structured my day in such a way that I would have some time for reading and practice, uh, basically compositional practice, uh, practicing the ecclesiastical cursus and, and other skills and compositional skills um, and reading various authors to get ideas. So, um, so that was basically a, a typical day. Although, as I say, the, the kind of work would vary just depending on what was going on uh, at the time. But the, the range of documents that we would write was uh, quite wide and therefore the styles that that range encompasses also is, a, is a, a relatively wide range of styles that all fall under the umbrella of ecclesiastical Latin or Christian Latin, but 
Um, but there are variances depending on the kind of the kind of document we're writing. So your colleagues in the Office of Latin Letters, were they were they European? Were they American? Where were they from? Very international. So at the time I was the only American and there were two Italians and two Polish. Um, and oh, I should add, we had an emeritus who used to come in and just help us, a wonderful man, um, Padre Carlos. I mean, he was from Chile, uh, but he was in his 80s, uh, retired, but still one of the greatest assets for us um, as a, uh, someone to learn from and was a real mentor to me. So the staff is generally quite international. It varies just depending on a lot of factors. I mean, not where, it's simply the factor of where do you find Latinists, but who's available. Um, in fact, the Polish priests that were there just happened to be uh, there, or they just happened to be extremely good Latinists, but they were there from the John Paul II eras, and John Paul II, well, John Paul II was a, was a, a, a Polish, uh, Polish nationality, so during that time there were several additions to the secretarial staff in various, various offices uh, that hailed from Poland. So we had a couple of Polish priests as well. At the time, we were all clerics or all priests, although that's not necessary. It's simply that uh, that state of life gives you a lot of flexibility to pick up your things and go to work for the Holy Father, uh, usually for very minimal pay since there's not much that's needed. And so there's a, a sense, that there's, a, there's a, a motive of convenience, actually, um, in addition to the fact that although there are many people who are trained Latinists, you, you can find basically trained ecclesiastical Latinists amongst the clergy um, uh, in relatively, relatively easily. So, so always international staff. I should say the Secretary of State, under which the Office of Latin Letters falls, was also quite international because you have a German section, a French section, even Arabic, Italian. You have all these languages that are represented to help the Pope carry out his office. And so the larger outside of our small department, the Secretary of State at large is probably the most international, I would say, working body of that type of a, of a, a let's say, a, um, a diplomatic type of, of office or, or department in the world. So it was very exciting to work in such a diverse and multinational environment. When you were going about your daily business, did you and your colleagues speak exclusively in Latin? Yes, amongst ourselves, yes. Although when we would have to interact with others that were outside of the department, we would revert to the current shared language of the Roman Curia in the Vatican, which is Italian. So amongst ourselves, we would speak in Latin, but when we were interacting with those outside, we would speak in Italian. And we, we made the it was a conscious decision to speak Latin so that we could stay in the language in which we were working in, since we were thinking and writing in that language all day. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Um, it was fairly easy to talk about the things that you're working on, or let's say church affairs and things like that. But one of the things we forced ourselves to do at tea time was to spend time talking from everything about the, the, the previous night's soccer match to um, politics in Italy to the car accident that happened somewhere in Rome. So, uh, and that was always fun and it stretched us and pushed, pushed us to use new vocabulary and new expressions and things like that. So it was a conscious choice for a reason that, uh, to speak Latin. 
Okay, so you worked under the administrations of two different popes, Benedict XVI and Pope Francis. How well did you know these men personally? We would know them to the extent that, well, I, I can put it this way. We kind of would know them on two different levels. So know them into, in, intimately in the sense of we become their kind of like brain and arms and hands and legs even um, to help him to carry out his work. Um, but that wouldn't involve the daily face-to-face contact by any means. Um, but we would see the Pope. Uh, well, we have to, I guess, make a distinction because each Pope is a bit different. So Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI, I tended to see uh, at least a couple of times a month more on a formal kind of basis. In other words, that we were there for some kind of an event or something that was rather you know, um, okay, beginning from a general audience to a, a, a relatively small um, uh, gathering for a certain purpose. So in other words, to accept the credential letters from a diplomat from a nation, something like that. So on the average about twice a month or so, during which time we might have a, a minute or two individually to just say hello. Um, but again, the and with Francis actually, it was about uh, the same frequency, although there was uh, a little more frequency with unexpected surprise encounters in the hallway. So he did not live in the Apostolic Palace as Benedict XVI did, and he doesn't live there today. But nevertheless, he would come over to conduct some business or see something, and he would literally just drop in. He'd come down the hall and and lo and behold, there he is. And that was kind of uh, nice and fun. Different personality, different kind of way of interacting. But again, most of the way, interestingly, I think for probably all departments of state, state departments, even at governments, maybe of large nations, you, you kind of know the person you're working for. You do know that person, but um, the real knowledge comes about through this sleeping and eating and working, you know, under the umbrella of the that persona all your all every day of your life and that's interesting i mean to really you know get into the mind of that person you're working for and that that was something that i i really appreciate now looking back that i could even without the direct day-to-day contact get to know those two individuals their way of thinking their personalities uh quite well so which one was the better latinist benedict is very gifted linguistically um he loves latin Um, He spoke Latin on a fairly regular basis before being elected Pope. After being elected Pope, he had less time to do that. Um, But he had a great love for the language, both classical Latin and the ecclesiastical authors. St. Augustine was a a major figure, a literary figure that had an influence on him um, and and others. Um, Pope Francis, he could certainly read Latin with no difficulty. No, no difficulty, difficulty at all, but he didn't speak as readily as Benedict would speak Latin. Um, and he would, in fact, he would interact with us in Italian when we would speak to him in Latin. He understood what we were saying. He, he liked that we would speak with him in Latin. He asked us to speak with him in Latin, but he would respond for the most part in Italian, whereas Benedict would reply in Latin whenever we would hold conversations with him. Okay. So I'd like, I'd like to examine one specific example of the type of work that you did. This is an excerpt from a document with a rather lengthy title, a letter of the Holy Father to the special envoy at the closing celebration of the day of Thanksgiving for the canonization of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. 
dated mm -hmm. August of 2016. This was addressed, mm -hmm. I believe, to the cardinal of the city of Skopje, North Macedonia, which I believe is the birthplace of Mother Teresa. Yes. So uh, I would like to ask you a couple of uh, specifics about this uh, in terms of how you would approach your daily work. But before that, would you mind reading some of this just so that our listeners can hear your pronunciation? So I'll uh, pronounce it with ecclesiastical pronunciation, the accepted pronunciation, or, or I should say the conventional pronunciation um, at the Vatican in general. Gaudiamus igitur hec omnia considerantes celebrationibus, quibus scopiae gratiae deo agentur propter canonizationem beati matris Theresiae del Calcutta, virginis, quae exemplum hominibus mulieribus quae huius temporis obtulit mirum illius. Okay, so what was your strategy for handling personal names and geographical names in these documents? Obviously, Teresa and Calcutta are easily because they're naturally first declension. It's not too much of a stretch to, to make Scopie first declension as well. But what was your philosophy for handling names, either personal names or geographical names, that did not so easily convert into Latin first or second declension forms? Yes, very good question. So this, the practice has varied through the years, and I would say even considerably in the last, let's say, 40 years, and it continues to evolve. And it evolves based on, first of all, the philosophy of the Latinists who happened to be working at the time in the office. Secondly, the Pope himself, who may have certain preferences. Um, and thirdly, on local customs. So in other words, that the example that we have on, in front of our eyes right now, um, there would be a sense of, let's say, deference or, or consideration for the cardinal or bishop or whoever it is that's receiving the letter, um, such that he could read this both in Latin uh, without too much of a difficulty. But then since it's going to be preserved in the archives, that these names would be recognizable. So in other words, even if you would have an, and often you did, an ancient name that would be quite appropriate for a city, and it may even be a Greek name, which was used, let's say, by Cicero or somewhere in Latin, classical Latin literature, after a certain period of time, let's say it's in the medieval period or whatever, if there was a real change in that name, um, everything from a transliteration to a, a, a literal name change for whatever reason, that would be respected so that it would be close enough to the modern name, whatever it might be. Now, in this particular case, I don't believe I'm the author of this, uh, but the, so Scopia, uh, um, the, well, uh, let's actually start with proper names. That's kind of interesting here. So as you say, basically, a lot of these names either are already Latinized or they already have equivalents in medieval Latin or in the literature in general. When I say literature, it's basically that there are documents that have been written about these individuals or about, let's say, in the case of Mother Teresa, the inspiration for her name, namely Teresa of Lisieux, that we have Latin precedents already. So it's very little problem. We would take that Latin name and apply it to the individual. Now, um, one other proper name. So here's a good, let's take a, a cognomen like Barack Obama. So, uh, or actually the entire name. Let's do this. So there's an interesting thing when he and I was there when he was elected president. Um, and of course, his name has to be used in official documents. You have to make a decision. What are you going to do? There was consideration to Latinize his first name as something like Baracus Baraki or something like that. Right. Um, and I think wisely, we decided 
and it was our decision. I mean, we were, well, we were asked our input. It was the Pope's decision, but we, we, our input was sought. And we decided um, there's no reason to do that um, because in other words, just keep it um, indeclinable. Um, if there was any kind of a connection, which there's not with, with some kind of a Latin name, uh, Roman name, something like that, then, then it would make sense. Otherwise, and this was our philosophy at the time, um, just keep things indeclinable from other, especially from other languages. Um, basically, transliterate uh, sometimes just based on phonetics because there was already an anglicized version, a spelling that we would use, and we would just use that as the basis for our Latin, you know, based on phenomes, basically to come up with a Latin name. And so Barack actually remained B A R A K. It was, uh, and Obama has actually, since Konyomina are basically, we treated them as indeclinable. Uh, that was also indeclinable. So in all the diplomatic correspondence that would use the name, you'll find it that it's completely um, indeclinable. And the cases, the grammatical case is clear enough from the context, the, the kind of letter. Uh, quickly then on geographical names. Um, as I said, the um, uh, there's a, it gets a bit confusing because um, a lot of these names are already Latinized because they are officially dioceses or archdioceses. And so in other words, if they are an ecclesiastical see, meaning a geographical territory that has ecclesiastical jurisdiction of some type, whether it's a, a bishop, archbishop, or, or some other kind of um, uh, delegate, something like that. Um, that name is already officially listed in what's called the Ordo, um, which is published every year, which lists all the dioceses and the official Latin names. And in fact, when new dioceses were created, we had to come up with the names, which would stick. I mean, they had to be, you know, kind of immortalized and we would choose those names very carefully. But again, we'd use the same criteria that we would try to, to seek what was, we, well, we would seek, but see what was there. There was a Latin name, great, already. You didn't have to do anything. Um, if not, you had to think carefully about um, if you had to make it a declension, uh, perhaps in some cases you could, um, uh, you know, take the name like Mariopolis or something like that. You know, you'd have a lot of variations of that in different languages. And you would just, you know, Mariopolis and then add an adjective about which Mariopolis it was or something like that. So um, there's conventions. There's conventions that I think it's extremely important to observe and to follow um, because otherwise it becomes a little bit chaotic. And especially when it comes to creating, especially geographical names that are going to stick that we, you know, we, we would do it with a lot of thought behind it. So you mentioned Barack Obama. How did you Latinize the name of Donald Trump? Yeah, good question. Um, I uh, actually was gone by that time, so I don't know what they okay. did there. That's okay. <laughs> now, I can say this because uh, I, I actually left uh, before uh, he took office. Um, however, I'm almost sure they would have gone with Donaldus Donaldi because that name is a name that some bishops have. Uh, and it's uh, not a common name, but common enough that there are Donaldus Donaldis out there. And then Trump again probably would have just uh, remained, I hope would have remained indeclinable. But um, uh, I honestly have not kept up to see what the credential letters, for example, the diplomatic correspondence looks like. But that, if they follow the same convention, and I think they, they probably are following the same convention because uh, several of the individuals I worked with are still there, then it would have been Donaldus Trump. Okay. Another word in the same Mother Teresa excerpt Canonizationem, uh, obviously not a word that you would discover in the Aeneid or De Bello Gallico, 
the vocabulary of Virgil and Julius Caesar, other classical authors, I'm sure, would not always accommodate the requirements of 21st century expression. So how did you chat? Mm. Uh, how did you approach this challenge of creating new words like this? Good. So there's a good example. Canonizatio, canonizationis feminine. That would have been a, it's, it's been a medieval word, which is specifically applied to the process by which one is declared to be a saint. Um, and in this case, we have uh, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta um, declared a saint. So there too, um, now there is a history of how they got to that word, so to speak. Um, based on canon canonis, um, which we use for canon law as well, even today. In other words, it, uh, it means, you know, measure of some type. Um, so, so there's an etymology that leads to it. But that whole, you know, zazio thing, that's become, and, and when I say that's become way back in the Middle Ages, that became a, a very easy way of basically, subs, you know, making a substantive, basically abstracting um, something. And, um, you know, early on in the history of the Christian Latinity, this was the case. Things like communio, uh, tri- uh, you know, well, trinitas is, is slightly ending, but this, this whole, those endings, trinitas, trinitatis, communio, communionis, um, canonizatio, canonizationis, those kinds of endings, mostly which are feminine gender, they, 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 they sprung up very quickly in the history of the development of Christian Latinity. Um, so, but there too, we wouldn't have to, that, that, that word canonizatio is not something we would have had to make up. Since it's a canonical process, um, you know, we now here's okay, but here's something interesting. When you're writing, like, so I, I think I may have actually at one stage in her process of canonization, I had to write some decretal letters, meaning it was like a 14 page document or something. But when you refer to this process of, of canonization, you, you're free to use other words. And there, there's a lot of them. So you could say something like in the, uh, I don't know, let's see. Um, in, uh, yeah, in, in, in turmam beatorum or something like that, you use turma turmai, um, or the, lots of different words you could use, like, you know, the throng of the blessed of the saints or something like that. And when with, with the whole thing of verbs, so ad, fe, ad fero ad fere, you know, there you could use a lot to refer to the process of canonization. You have a lot of, you have a lot of basically synonyms that you can use and you have to use them when you go absolutely crazy. Because if you just use a word like canonizatio and then have a, in fact, there is no, no verb that, um, that actually, interestingly, that corresponds. Uh, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Canonizatio Solomon is canonizatio, which is relatively rare. But if you're just limited to like those choices, it gets very boring after a while. So luckily, <laughs> there's already a rich history. There's, there's, a, there's a history when you go back. And that's, that's, what you, that's why you would read documents you know, for centuries preceding this, this kind of, this genre. So in this genre, we have, you know, something like a canonization or a congratulatory letter to somebody, you know, in the wake of the canonization, you go through a bunch of models and just glean these expressions that were being used 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 50 years ago, even, you know, 60 to 100. That's what I would do. And I would just keep a database of all these synonyms so that you would have a abundance, a copia verborum of just, all kinds of different things to use. Do you recall any words that were really challenging? Um, interestingly, no, I mean, no, not right off the, the top of my head. So here, one example where I was expecting some big challenges was when we wrote Laudato Si, 
And that's an Italian title um, for, a, I guess it was an encyclical letter, if I remember correctly, longer document, but it was one of Pope Francis's early documents about the environment. And it was quite complicated and scientific with, you know, greenhouse gases and emissions and nitrogen, you know, all these different. Surprisingly, and I can't, uh, I mean, in every case where I expected not to find something that had already been in use, when I say in, in been in use, even in like scientific, let's say, dissertations of the, the 20th century, you know, 1920th centuries, which were written in Latin, you know, and we have access to the stuff. If you look, you can find just about everything that's necessary. And there may have been one process, like chemical process, I don't remember what it was, that we would have found that there was not a Latin word created yet. So it's actually shocking that basically, when you, if you look in the right places, you can find almost everything that you need um, to, uh, to say whatever it is you want. Now, I should also mention that and it wasn't only Christian, when I say Christian sources, like prior papal documents. So especially in the 20th century, and especially in the late 1950s, 1960s, you had like in Belgium, the Societas Latina, you had a lot of these grassroots organizations that were doing a lot of work to put lexicons together, to modernize the Latin language. And you had efforts even at the Vatican by, by Latinists around the Vatican, but not for the purpose of producing papal documents, but were, who, who were very interested in keeping the language current and creating, again, these various, you know, the lexicon recentis latinitatis is the Vatican version of this. It's, a, uh, it's only in Latin and Italian. In other words, the entries are in Latin. They, the keywords are in Latin, the entries in, in, in Italian. Um, no, other way around, sorry. Um, in which you can find, you know, all these Latin words, but they were my predecessors. Um, and some of the names would be Carlos Egger, um, Pavanetto, Claytus Pavanetto, uh, who else? Um, the, the list goes on. Bacci, Antonio Bacci, all of these individuals who basically were just on their own initiative, keeping the language up to date. And it was quite astounding to see how up to date, even in the 60s and 70s, with all this, you know, this, this frenetic work that was going on that you didn't have to look very far to find, find terms. One, I should, if I can share one other example. So yeah, uh, I also, this is outside of the church context. I was asked to translate Jeff Kinney's uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid uh, into Latin. And I thought it was, I didn't know the books well. I read them. Um, I, I thought it was a novel idea. Obviously the publisher knew, and it was an Italian publisher, but they, the, the publishing house knew what they were doing because I didn't know there'd be an audience for this, but Indeed, there there was, and I think it's still in print. But um, even there, in this you know silly tale of, of Gregory Heffley and all of this stuff, you know, um, there was only one term that did not exist in Latin, and it was heavy metal music. And <laughs> I just came up with uh, musica metallica gravis, uh, musica metallica gravis, and I had to think carefully about what I wanted to use. Um, but I had to look back to well, how did heavy metal, you know, get get um, you know, get invented in English in the first place. And actually, I thought it had something to do like way back with Steppenwolf, you always read that stuff in the 60s. Whatever. It actually was considerably later. I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was a New York Times columnist who actually first used the, the and I don't remember with, with which, which music group it was, but who used heavy metal music for the first time um, in a derogatory sense, in fact. So I, I looked into that to see, you know, because you can discover things, the etymology of even a, a, a term that's in, you know, a, uh, in, 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 in some vernacular language, you can learn about it that will help you to come up with the right Latin term. And since there was no other story to this term, 
have a matter of music. I just, I just literally, you know, translated it the best I could. Um, but, but my point is actually that again, there's all kinds of stuff, everything from bubble gum to the cheese touch to in this story that, um, you know, you would think uh, there's no way you're going to find the right word for, it. but either it's already been invented or surprisingly, you go back into Plautus or Frenzius, you know, and you, you've got something that's really, really neat and that is, is classical and ancient and it works. I mean, it, you know, might be not exactly what is being talked about, but certainly close enough. That happens with, especially with like personalities and uh, facial expressions and things like that, you know, you can find a lot of that stuff, but we, the, 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 the less we try to invent, I'm going on about this. I know I'm trying to make a point because I feel strong <laughs> about this. The less we, we feel like we have to invent, the more we respect what's already there. And, and that goes for speaking and writing Latin and writing Latin in general, because a lot of people are interested in this movement, you know, um, but they're making up all kinds of terms, which are only confusing matters because they're already out there. You just have to know where to look. They're already out there. Okay, let me ask you about the Latin Twitter account for the Vatican that was established in 2013, because maintaining this account was one of your responsibilities on the job, correct? That's correct, yes. So what did you think when they first came to you with this idea? So this is interesting. We actually went to them with the idea. So oh, here's really? how okay. it worked. Yeah, so when the, it was Benedict XVI, and it wasn't his, it was someone, it was someone in the communications office, uh, a wonderful gentleman and a friend of mine, an American who actually worked in the uh, communications office. There are actually two of them at the, I guess, the time who really felt that it was time for the Pope to start entering into the world of social media. And so there was a long discussion, which I wasn't directly involved in. I knew it was going on um, about which social media to use. And, you know, we had consultants and, and all of this stuff. We, of course, we gave Facebook consideration, all of this stuff. We just needed a, a platform that would be best to start with. Anyway, through that process, they, they landed on Twitter. And originally, I think it was six languages that uh, it was decided that the Pope would simultaneously that his first tweets would go out in six. I think it was six languages at the time. Um, now, we knew that Latin was not among, among them. And inside our hearts, that is the Latinists, we were disappointed. But we didn't say anything. We, we just it wasn't our place. Um, and then after the first, the initial tweets of Benedict XVI, a flood of letters was pouring into our office, uh, written in Latin for the most part, of people who were saying, okay, so great, the Pope has started to tweet and use Twitter. Why is in Latin among the languages that he's tweeting in? It's the official language of the church and all this stuff. And I have to say that by far more than half of these letters were from non Catholic, non-Christian, just <laughs> people who like the language, you know, uh, agnostic, atheist, whatever, or other languages. Yeah, Every, uh, of course, I mean, even there are Muslim, of uh, course, of course, correspondents writing to us, you know, just from all over the world. And they were just wondering about this. So we didn't have to make much of an argument for two reasons. One, we had all those letters, piles of them in our office. And then two, it was Benedict the 16th, who the minute we knew, the minute we would say, hey, why don't we add Latin to the list that he would be ecstatic? And he was. So it was added. It was added. I don't know how many months it was after. And then there were a lot of naysayers who were saying, oh, you know, it's not going to get that many follows, followers or whatever. Well, pretty soon we had surpassed um, we had surpassed the Portuguese and the Polish and so on. And I think at one point, in fact, the number of followers was second or third. I mean, only to French uh, to to. Well, yeah, French, English and Italian 
would have been, I think, the, the three most. And, and Latin was right up there and maybe even I think surpassed French for a while. I don't know where it is now, but quickly rose as far as the number of followers. And it was wonderful. Um, we, uh, I had great fun with that. I, I was the, the leader of the project once we started it because um, I happened to be the youngest on the staff at the time. And I, I didn't use Twitter personally, but I knew enough about it to know, you know how to go about it. And there too, um, we were not aiming at exact translations. And when I say translation, usually the Pope, it would arrive to us in Italian. Things usually do. That's, I mean, he, you know, Pope Benedict might originally write it in German, but it would quickly be translated into Italian. That's circulated to everybody. When I say everybody, the, the English section, the Portuguese section, the German section, the Latin section. So we're all working on something, but we knew that our job, or we felt our job was not to give a, a literal translation, but to make it as Latin as possible. We wanted to communicate what the Pope was saying, but for our audience, they wanted to see so stylistically, vocabulary and everything. They wanted to see something that really Latin, not just gimmicky. And I put my heart into that. I, you know, we would reach back for Virgilian expressions, you know, taken from, and we used them from the Aeneid or, or Ovid or whatever. Um, whenever we could. And stylistically, you know, we might feel like Cicero one day and Augustine the next day. So we had that kind of, you know, fun as well. We would, we would pull from a different, different inspirations as far as style and composition. Occasionally, not very often, that we would write them a dactylic examiner or something like that. Um, nice. So we had a lot of fun with it. We had a lot of fun. And I, I, I don't think, honestly, I can't really speak for the staff now. I noticed that they're not putting as much into it as, 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 you know, we did. And that happens with initiatives over time that, you know, people lose a little bit of interest or they're busy with other things or whatever it might be. But I, I don't follow it. I, I shouldn't be following the account. I don't, but people ask me about it. They'll bring out a tweet that has just been launched. And I have to say that in several cases, uh, occasionally there will be an outright error, which is very embarrassing, but usually it's just, I'm not super proud of the style it's used. I will do the same thing. Okay. Uh, uh, I did check a couple of days ago. The account currently has 973,000 followers. Okay. Uh, and uh, we're recording this for the benefit of the listeners. We're recording this the first week of April. And uh, a recent tweet essentially is a prayer for the people of Ukraine. So our listeners, Dan, have heard a beautiful pronunciation from a professional Latinist at the Vatican. Now they can hear me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Great. Plura milia hominum ex Ukraina belli causa fugera coacti sunt. Very, very uh, many thousands of people have been forced to flee from the Ukraine. They do that as U C R A I N A, first declension uh, for the sake of war. Said at multi abstricti sunt terram suam in Asia, uh, Africa et America relinquera. In host omnes vertimus mentum et precem nostrum. So, I mean, is this uh, comparable to to your style when you were handling that accounts? Yeah, I think so. Um, certainly, the vocabulary sounds good to me there. Uh, stylistically, I, I think so. That, that um, yeah, just by hearing you say, it, I don't have it in front of my eyes, but I would say yes. Um, I I think the syntax is. Uh, they're probably not playing with that as much. And uh, that's fine. Um, sometimes, to be honest, we would go to a little bit of an extreme. I mean, using, you know, certain kind of hyperbatons and things like that, that might be really, it could be, depending on one's level of Latin, could really be stretching things. Um, so it sounds like the syntax is, you know, might be following the vernacular pretty closely, but I, it sounds good. I mean, the vocabulary, you know, coactisun, things like that. I mean, that's, I think that's good vocabulary. Yeah. Okay. 
So which classical author do you think would have flourished the most on Twitter? Mm. Um, Marshall, really, because I think he was tweeting at the time. <laughs> I mean, epigrams. Yeah, when you look at the epigrams, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know how many, I, I wanted to do a study about how many would it be, I don't know if, you, if Twitter is still limited to 145 characters or whatever, but, you know, you have a, a, a good, I, I, st I did start to, in my teaching, collect them, uh, uh, focus on the ones that were within uh, Twitter acceptable lengths, and there are lots of them, you know, two-liners, or even some threes that, in fact, still come in, or, or fours that actually, I think, just come in just within the the uh, the the 145 character range or whatever. So I'm Marshall, you know. Now, I mean, as far as like the matter of what he would have tweeted about, that's another question. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I, I did I did I have to confess that I I was really immersed in Marshall at the time, just because I wanted to see that style. I wanted to see what could be done. In other words, not Catullus. You could you know, Catullus is another one that uh, some of those are are certainly uh, you know well within Twitter length as well. So any epigrammists, but uh, but Marshall particularly because I feel that uh, he um, kind of brought the genre into its own. Even though, of course, others were you know there were there were others that were experimenting with the style and all that stuff. I, I really felt that he had um, brought it to a level where he just wanted to showcase everything that could be said, um, you know, uh, and and it is pretty impressive. So yeah, I would I would say Marshall. Okay, one more question about the Vatican, then I want to talk more about your background, and I want to hear the story in terms of how you came to work at the Vatican. Um, but my question is, what do you think is the greatest misunderstanding that people have today about the Vatican? Good question. Um, yes, the greatest. Perhaps that... Um, well, it could be one of them is that you basically always see the final product or the, the, the world does. And this could go for any state department as well. So working in the inside of this, of this, 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 this operation, what, what stuns one is that a lot of what you're doing is just averting disasters, um, communication disasters, miscommunication disasters, all kinds of things. Uh, and that goes some of the, the diplomatic, and, and I'm speaking mostly because I was in the, the office, the Secretary of State is also responsible for the diplomatic activity, which is very much involved in both, you know, kind of like the macro political scene and also individuals, relations with states and all of that. So uh, the it's very, the misunderstanding might be like, um, it, it's there's a lot of labor that goes into sometimes you know rather like what seem to be simple tasks like coming out with a you know a five sentence statement a public statement or something like that um there's there's a lot that goes behind the scenes let's put it that way um and i again i can think any state department department could see this and when you see memoirs that you know 600 pages whether it be harry kissinger was ever that you know you realize that there's just so much that goes on that is geared towards some kind of a result and everybody that the world knows about the result, but not the work, the work behind it. So that would be pretty, and something that I think would be misunderstanding that people, you know, that uh, the Vatican is placed in a very, so along with this is placed in a very interesting position and in that it's the smallest sovereign territory in the world. It does have diplomatic status. And for this reason, it has a it's, it's viewed by other large states and small states as a privileged locus for, um, for intermediary kind of action. Um, 
and peace talks and all of that in various organizations, United Nations, European Union, and all of this. It doesn't have voting rights because of the legal status that it has, but it has what's called observational status. So it can make interventions and all of that. Um, it's a, for a, a, well, it's a large, put it this way. It's the largest like single organization as far as the number of people, that is the Catholic Church throughout the world. And yet the smallest kind of like, you know, sovereign entity, the Vatican City State, which is extremely small, but the combination of those two things makes it a very important, I'd say, player on the world stage, much more important than people would would think. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Okay. All right, great. So let's turn back the clock now, Dan. Uh, here on the Quintilian podcast, I always enjoy speaking to people whose paths to Latin have been unconventional. And this is certainly true for you, isn't it? So where did you grow up and when did you first study Latin? Good. So my story is quite, I think, quite unique, a little bit interesting. Um, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I attended public schools. My mother taught in public schools. And um, I, I never had an opportunity to take a foreign language until I was in high school. And that was German. Um, I had no Latin. Well, I'll put it this way. Okay. So I had some exposure to Latin primarily through choirs so through high school choir or school choirs and church choirs and we would sing various pieces i was really fascinated by the sound of latin without really knowing how it functioned at all but i mean I, there was something about it that i found extremely attractive and i can't really describe what that was because i didn't really know but uh it may have just been the music itself that you know um, that would basically convey these these Latin lyrics and these Latin words I, I found to be extremely um, enticing and, uh, and fascinating. So, um, but I had no formal Latin training until college. And in at college, I took it for fun because I was a microbiology major. I was a science major, but I, I wanted to pursue this, this interest that um, uh, I had had for a long time. And so I started at the very beginning. Um, and I think it was the learning to read Latin series at that time. In fact, the Swift method, I think it was still based on that at the university of Michigan where I did my undergraduate degree. Um, but I have to admit that the, the method, um, I, I did not like, and, uh, and it didn't, I, I, you know, I, I did well in it, but I felt like I was, it was like crawling in a snail's pace. And I just felt that there was some other way that this could be learned, you know, taught and learned. I didn't know what that way was, but I really had that strong sense. Well, by the time I graduated from college, I decided to go to seminary, to attend seminary. And then there you have to learn uh, Latin. Um, one of the thing happened in college. So to go back to my undergraduate years, I also in philosophy courses that I took there, I discovered authors such as uh, Anselm, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas um, in a philosophy course. In, so it was all in translation. But I, that's where I really discovered my kind of intellectual passion and in authors like that. And I realized that sooner or later, I would have to learn the language if I wanted to understand these authors. So I was determined one way or another that, I, again, I had already taken, was taking some classical Latin in college and, um, and to be honest, just, you know, not really enjoy, I mean, yeah, not enjoy, enjoying it to the extent that I, I knew I could if I just had the right method. So I entered seminary with that. Um, and that was, 90, that was 93? Yes, I was 93. Yeah, exactly. And um, so then when I entered seminary, um, I had to learn it. And so I started seminary in Washington, D.C. Um, again, a teacher, best of intentions, not a very good method. In this case, it was with the Collins, uh, which is a primer to ecclesiastical Latin, which is still in print. Uh, very dry 
synthetic presentation of the language. It's effective and that you can move quickly and all of that stuff. But um, again, when I say it's the old kind of grammar and translation method, I mean, I, I just didn't like it. I just didn't like the method. So finally, after two years there, I, I made a lot of progress and I studied a lot on my own. But it was finally when I went to Rome to study in seminary for my what's called major theology. So the, the, the last level before ordination. That's where I had encountered, I had, already, I, I had already heard about Reginald Foster, very inspirational teacher. And I sat in the classroom with him and I was transfixed. I couldn't believe he was, he was presenting a new method um, and very fresh, no declensions, no conjugations, none of that nomenclature, um, no textbook. It was all dictionary and primary texts and off you go. It was fantastic. I can't say enough about it. And I don't think I'm alone. I think there are a lot of former students of his that um, really kind of uh, could say, even if they're not using his method today, because it's very difficult to implement for all kinds of reasons. But if they learned according to that method or, or much of their Latin according to that method, they, they would have the same appreciation and admiration that I do. But there, that's when things really took off. And I studied with him for five years. Um, and at the end of that five years, I was already addicted. And so I, I went off into, I was a ministerial priest um, for several years, meeting in a parish. And uh, then I got to go to, uh, I went to seminary. I went, I was asked to teach in the seminary to teach philosophy and Latin. And the passion continued uh, at that level as well. So um, now finally, I'm skipping some things here, but uh, then through the years, it was from there at the seminary that I was summoned to Rome to work on the secretarial staff of Benedict XVI, but it was not as a Latinist per se. I was, I was called to be an English secretary. Really? Meaning that I was working in English for a year and a half, I think it was about a year and a half, before I was transferred to the Latin section. Um, because Reginald Foster, in fact, my teacher, who was my predecessor in the Latin office, he had to return to the United States for health reasons. And um, they didn't know what to do, uh, <laughs> losing him, and, and they thought it would be easier to make an internal transfer. So literally, I picked up the stuff on my desk from down the hall. And I joined the Latinists at that point. And I was I was delighted to do that. I, I enjoyed my work as an English secretary, but honestly, I felt like I had made whatever contribution I could make. And I I I again the, the, I was doing Latin for fun. I was teaching Latin on the side and all of that. So to make that transition was a really good thing for me um, to learn a lot. So, so that's kind of my eater. Okay, so back to Reginald Foster. I mean, how would you describe his methodology? The term comprehensible input is used a lot. We've talked about this on my podcast before. It's a term that's sometimes misunderstood. I mean, would that be a good description for his methods? Actually, no, it's, it's the opposite. And okay. I'll try to synthesize it. But interesting, a lot of people, uh, they, they think that because they think of him as, you know, and, and he was very in favor of what I would call active Latin, but it was not comprehensible input. So okay. in other words, the, the reason that's in the other side of the spectrum is literally the first day of class. Um, and oh, but I should say that I took him from day one. So I, you know, I learned Latin, but I wanted to start from the beginning because I wanted to learn his whole system comprehensively. I didn't want to try to enter in the middle. And that was a strategy that I used. Not everybody used it, but some of us used because we wanted to, to, to start at the beginning. So anyway, you know, he'll throw a sentence up there, Cicero, uh, an eight line sentence or whatever, and he will talk through it. But um, it's anything but comprehensible in the sense that he simply <laughs> wants to show a couple of things, how real Latin. So he didn't like, whether it be Wheelock or whatever, these little, you know, starting with two or three or four word sentences. What he would do is give you the real stuff 
and then only expect you to do the things that you could do. So in other words, um, changing a verb from singular to plural um, or something like that, changing some nouns from singular to plural, whatever it might do. Um, it, um, uh, that, was, that was his approach and it was really quite phenomenal. Um, I mean, for me, it, it just opened up my entire eyes. So how would I describe his method? It's building up the entire languages from the, the most basic elements, which are even more basic than conjugations and declensions because it is, he doesn't use conjugations and declensions. He, he builds up by simply teaching you subject and object forms um, for what he calls the blocks of nouns. So not declensions, but blocks of nouns. And then he groups the verbs. He breaks them down to the simplest elements and slowly builds it up. So there's really no memorization, but you're always immersed in original texts. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be said, but, but uh, it's, it's really not comprehensible input. Um, but is it active? Yes. So in other words, from day one, you would not simply be reading, you know, I mean, learning Latin from the standpoint of being able to look at something on a page and say what it means. You had to manipulate that language of Cicero or Ovid or Plautus or whomever, and, and you would um, and you would say your own things using that vocabulary. So active, yes, it definitely was active. So would he use grammatical terminology, you know, ablative of manner, dative of agent, purpose clause, or would he avoid that type of terminology? Yeah, so some like purpose clause he, he, would, he would use uh, with the ablative and dative. He didn't like to make things complicated by all of these divisions. So in other words, that he didn't use, in fact, he doesn't use ablative. He uses the from, with, by, in form of the verb. And you would have to basically pick the preposition in English that would work the best. And I'm still a huge fan of this. I think, I mean, when students come to me and they're losing sleep because they can't figure out if it's ablative of instrument, you know, instrument, right? Or, or it means, I mean, like, come on, you know, I mean, we want to waste their time, like, you know, this stuff. I mean, just tell me what it means is kind of the approach, you know. So he would call that the from with buy in form. Um, and then the data was the two for form, right? Okay. And then he used subject and object and so on. Purpose clause he would have to use um, because he did have, he used the ut clauses. And he would go through those methodically. So it kind of depended, but he certainly didn't like memorizing, let's say, conjugations. You know, that you basically, he has times, one, two, three, four, five, and six. And you would learn those times, those tenses over time, right? Um, and uh, you would learn to manipulate words to, to change those times, but you would not be, you know, the whole amo, amas, amat thing, he would drive him crazy. You, you, that's the last thing that he would ever do. Um, and so, and for that reason, he did not use that kind of nomenclature of conjugations and declensions. Okay. So you worked at the Vatican for 10 years. Uh, so if I may ask Dan, why did you decide to leave? So, uh, after a long period of reflection and prayer and consultation, um, it was actually a vocational issue in the sense that I, I realized that I had not sufficiently basically discerned what, uh, the commitment that I was making, uh, and, and mostly for a lifelong commitment to celibacy as a Catholic priest. So I launched, I initiated with the support of my bishop at that time, a, a process. It's a, it's a canonical process through a church process by which you ask for dispensation from your priestly promises. And along with that, um, at a certain point, uh, I did that very discreetly, but at a certain point I realized that if I, and I, I was serious about it. In other words, I realized that I was going to go through with this process so that I could, so that I could marry and start a family. 
Um, so when I was far enough along in the process, I withdrew from the Vatican, actually went back to the seminary, taught there for a while. And, uh, but that's what it was associated with. It, it would have been, I mean, it wouldn't have been impossible. It wouldn't quite be right to have continued my work in a, in a different state of life, having been recognized there already as a priest. And so it was that kind of vocational thing. How did the job at Cornell come about? So that's interesting that I was teaching summers and on the side throughout my time at the Vatican. And um, one of my colleagues at the time, Professor Michael Fontaine, a good friend at Cornell University, uh, he and I were teaching together. Um, and he was uh, within that circle at a certain point, a circle of friends with whom I shared the news that I, I was leaving. And he kind of proposed this idea. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, you know, our president here at Cornell University, this was Hunter Rawlings at the time, is a classicist, and he's very supportive of active Latin and modern methods. Um, and, uh, you know, can I talk to him? We'll see what we can do. And they worked very hard to open up a position for me that was not, you know, officially or prior to that open. They created a position for me because they wanted to implement some of these methods. Um, uh, most of the active methods, so not Reginald Foster per se, but having someone who was fluent in Latin and spoken Latin to implement some of these things they had a great interest in. So uh, that, that's how it came about. And it was the greatest thing that I could have asked for. I mean, to, to, I love teaching and that's another thing why I, I loved working at the Vatican, but I really, my heart was really yearning to get into full-time teaching. So um, I, uh, I welcomed the opportunity to do that. And I've had a great time at Cornell and, and a lot of freedom to use active Latin, meaning I teach conversational Latin in all my courses. I do some spoken elements and active elements. And uh, uh, I, I just feel more fortunate than I ever deserved. Fantastic. So we have to move on to our closing segment soon, but one more question um, about Cornell and your work in higher education. On this podcast, we're always talking about problems faced by Latin teachers. Since you're a college professor, what do you think are some of the main challenges right now facing the field of classics and higher education? So I believe that with regard to classics, and even more widely, not so much classics, I mean, yes, classics, but even more widely the humanities, I feel that we are always reevaluating our role in higher education, and not just we, but the entire institution and the field of higher education is asking questions of the humanities and classics, what's your role, why do you exist? And I, I welcome that because I think that, you know, we have to ask those questions. Um, but that's a big challenge too, because I think that the value, uh, and let's just take the classics as a field within the larger umbrella of the humanities, the value is not always present uh, on the surface, right? It's not always kind of like visible. And, and we don't always, one, either know we classicists uh, or those who are teaching Latin in the world of, or Greek in, in the world of classics, we either don't know ourselves or we're still kind of struggling with our identity, or if we think we figured it out, we're not articulating it very well to those, so to speak, outside the field. I think that's the biggest challenge, um, in my opinion, that we face in classics right now. Um, and uh, there's also the issue, of course, of the role of languages within classics. Um, and I know that's a, that's a big issue right now, and a lot of, you know, all of us are talking about it. Um, I, I have a I suppose a unique view on the situation since I mostly specialize in 
the teaching of the language itself. In other words, that even though I love the classics and I have, I've taught all kinds of authors from Ovid to Virgil to Cicero to Horace and, 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 and just in, in, in others, it's just, I, I, again, I feel so fortunate that I can, I just have had opportunities to, to cover a wide range of authors. Um, but um, I don't really worry. In other words, that let's say if there is a trend of now treating Latin as a subfield in itself, right? And within classics or even outside of classics. And for me, it's fine because that's what I do already. I just, there, I, most of my students are not classicists, will never be classicists, and they love Latin. And most of them just happen to be STEM students, uh, lots of engineers and astronomers and things like that. They took it at some point, usually in high school, they love it and they do it out of fun. And I want it to be fun. So, um, so, and, and if there are students that come to the classroom, if they register for the class and they come, I'm happy with that. So in a way I feel somewhat um, incubated from the larger identity questions about the classics. And they are important questions, but I just feel very privileged that if students want to learn Latin for whatever purpose, and it might not be for classics, it might be for medieval studies or Renaissance studies or whatever, or history, then I'll teach them Latin. Absolutely. Okay, time for our closing segment, Dan. Six carissimi res, six of your most beloved things, six of your favorite things as a Latin teacher. Number one, what is your favorite Latin textbook? It's going to be a surprise to many, but it's based on Foster's method. It's the Lewis and Short's dictionary, because that was the textbook that he used. And that's where I really learned Latin. <laughs> How that works is another, is a, 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 probably a topic for another podcast, but I, that is, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not joking when I say Lewis and Short, the, the, the dictionary. Okay. Number two, what is your favorite place to visit in Italy? That's a tough one, but I'm going to go with Naples and really? maybe specifically Mount Vesuvius. Um, for some reason, the whole history there and Pliny's letter, it, it just brings in a tragic way, the ancient world to life for me. You know, you, you can feel by just by being there and reading that letter or, or um, and Naples in general, I think, has more of a feeling of kind of the, the long trajectory of, of so to speak, a, the rough Latin Roman history, maybe even more than Rome does now. Um, so Naples and Mount Vesuvius uh, and other places around Naples, being the Herculaneum, Oplontis, and so on. So the archaeological sites are Pompe Pompeii. Those are all wonderful. Great. Number three, what is your favorite work of classical literature or your favorite classical author? That's it, because I love so many. Um, uh, okay, I'll go with two different ones. So the classical literature would be the Aeneid, uh, but my author would be Cicero, because it's hard to pick out a single work of Cicero that I would say is my favorite. But the Aeneid still stands for me as a work that I can read repeatedly and look at it in different ways. I was just listening to some podcasts this morning. It's one of those works that uh, when I get to the end, I might take a short break from it, but I always find myself going back to the beginning and reading it again. And Cicero, simply because as far as an author, because I learned I, and I still continue to learn compositional styles. Um, uh, and I, I, I work on that and I teach graduate since composition. So I'm always immersed in Cicero. OK, great. Number four, what is your favorite movie or television program about the classical world? Mm. So there's a production of Medea. Uh, and I don't who did it in the 1980s, uh, Euripides uh, uh, um, uh, Medea. That is fantastic. And, and I choose that because basically when I think about the ancient world, what I like is drama and, and a televised movie, whatever. I mean, I'm talking, you know, Greek tragedies and Roman comedies or whatever. Um, 
I would much prefer watching that stuff rather than kind of the high, you know, high fidelity um, historical programs, many of which are very good. Just not, I'm not interested as in those. So, and I, I wish I could give more details on that production. I know it was the eighties, but it, the, the actors, the cast is absolutely fantastic. Okay. PBS, I think produced it. Okay, great. Number five, what is your favorite character in classical mythology? Oh, that is hard. Boy, that's because I have so many. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm going to almost have to pick one. Um, I suppose a little randomly. Um, oh gosh. So let's go with, uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily a, it can be any mythological figure. I have to go with Dido actually. Dido. If that can be, it's a, yes. If that could be a, so, um, and there's a reason for this. I, I find that, uh, there's a depth there. Uh, and I feel this great sympathy. Um, so if we can consider her again, historical mythology, so to speak, but it's, um, I, I find the Queen of Carthage to be a, a very complex and fascinating figure. Um, and uh, I, I guess I'm partially putting her name out there because I have a lot of students who have done some fantastic work at Cornell, graduates and undergraduates have written some wonderful interpretations of her character. All right, great. Number six. Finally, what is your favorite Latin expression or quotation? Mm, yeah, good one. Let's see. Expression. Um, so let's see. And because I have to choose comments between um, Christian and, and, and classical as well. I would say um, you can pick two if you need to. <laughs> well, let's go with if I know that, um, uh, ad astra per aspera. Um, right. So, you know, to the stars, <laughs> to the rough things, because I, I think that for all of us in this field, um, we, we, we reach the stars, uh, you know, with this understanding and it, it's really something that I wish everybody could experience. And you look back and the, the blood, sweat and tears were all worth it. Um, and that goes for both the language, but also the ancient world. It's very, it takes a lot of grit and determination to make breakthroughs in our understanding. I think of what's going on in the ancient world, but gosh, is it worth it? Um, I really think it is. And I think people are starting to realize that as well, even amateurs, so to speak, that to understand uh, everything from the Roman Republic to the Trojan War to whatever else that we understand ourselves, we understand, you know, the current world even better. So, yeah. And do you have a Christian one in mind as well? Hmm. Uh, yes. Um, so our heart is restless, O Lord, until it rests in you uh, by Augustine. That one has stuck with me since I first encountered it in Latin back in college. And uh, it's just a deep psychological insight, uh, which uh, obviously is in a Christian context with Augustine, but I think uh, just stretches across the whole human condition as far as seeking something that's going to give us a certain rest. And so I love that line. 